Brothers and sisters, it is my privilege to proclaim the word of God to you this morning. First, let me thank Pastor Ryan for the invitation to do so. I used to uh, enjoy preaching when I was in seminary, but that was 12 years ago. So I'm a little rusty. I ask that you bear with me patiently. But first, Merry Christmas. Some of you might think this is, I should be saying Merry Belated Christmas, but this is actually only day six of Christmas out of 12. Um, the, uh, the older tradition we really should bring back and celebrate Christmas for 12 whole days, space it out a little bit. Feast that much more. So how was your Christmas celebration? Was it warm and joyful? Was it cheerful and bright? Was it everything you hoped it would be? If so, let me say congratulations, you're weird. For almost all of us, we feel the joy of Christmas, but it is usually mixed with some sadness or awkwardness. And that's nothing new, as we see in God's Word this morning. We will be looking at the story of the Magi in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. People think the story of the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus is familiar, heartwarming, joy-filled, and it is those things. But it is also odd, awkward, and sometimes uncomfortable if we read it without the fogged glasses of half-remembered Christmas's past. So listen to the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please pray with me. Holy and loving Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and thank you for this word that you have inspired, revealing to us your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please open our hearts to your word. Please work in our hearts and conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us, both today and every day, that we may live and glorify your name. And in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So as I read, did you pick up on the awkwardness? Let me rephrase it a little bit. These wise men from a foreign land show up in Jerusalem, asking about a newborn king. Now, the existing king, a guy by the name of Herod, is not a newborn, and he doesn't have any babies. 
it's hard for us to get a sense of just how awkward that is. Maybe, maybe if you imagine the ambassador from China calling the White House and asking to speak with President Pence. Oops. Mike Pence is not the president. And president Trump might be a bit touchy about the mistake. So when these Easterners came and started asking awkward questions, of course, all Jerusalem was stirred up because they expected there to be a big problem. And sure enough, Herod became suspicious. But also think about what the Magi were asking exactly. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, we have heard this so many times that we fail to recognize how strange it really is. Kings are not born kings. They inherit once their father or grandfather dies. Newborn king is almost a contradiction in terms in human history. So this odd question may be what made Herod think, huh, maybe this is about the Messiah, the Christ, who was expected to be a king. Now, of course, a new king, whether the Messiah or anyone else, was a bigger threat to Herod than these awkward foreigners. So rather than killing them, he devised a plan. Let these strange outsiders find the child. When they report back, Herod would kill him. But where would they find him? That's the question. How do you find the Messiah? Well, the person, people to ask are the religious leaders. And so he asked them, where is the Messiah expected to be born? Now, these scribes are the people who know their Bibles backwards and forwards. So, of course, they give the correct answer in Bethlehem of Judea. But look at how indifferent they are. All Jerusalem is stirred up wondering if foreigners are asking about the Messiah, and the religious leaders only care that they give the right answer. How can you possibly know where the Messiah will be born, hear rumor that maybe he has been born, and just say, eh, I don't care? But they give their answer, and that was the end of it, as far as they were concerned. Herod was more interested than the religious leaders. And so he sent the foreigners off to Bethlehem, instructing them to report back so that he could worship this new Messiah, although he had other plans. Then we finally get to the positive part of this passage. These foreigners rejoice to see the star again and find Jesus and his mother in a house in Bethlehem, and they give their gifts. We'll talk a lot more about these gifts later. But right now, let me just point out how useless these gifts are to a carpenter's family. You might think that the gold is useful, it's worth a lot after all, but you can't buy anything practical with it. Imagine a poor working family today being given a million dollar bill. Sure, it's worth a ton, but what can they spend it on? The grocery store doesn't make change. If they try to spend it, a young working-class mother with a bar of gold will raise eyebrows, will raise even suspicions. How did she get it? Did she steal it? Now, the frankincense, maybe imagine this is the most expensive sort of French perfume. What's this carpenter's family going to use it on? Around the house? And the myrrh. Here is your very own bottle of formaldehyde. Good for all the embalming. You need to... Er, huh. So these gifts are completely useless for Jesus and his family. We'll come back to them in a bit and say who they are useful for. And perhaps the most awkward part of this story is what we miss because we are 21st century Americans rather than 1st century Jews. Our Bible translation says wise men for the Greek term 
Magi. Do you know what the Magi really were? As, as much as I love the song, they almost certainly were not kings. The Greek term magus could be used for magicians, tricksters, and frauds. You might think of Simon Magus from Acts chapter 8. But primarily, the term magi referred to the pagan priests who took care of the sacred fires in the Zoroastrian religion. In case you haven't heard of it before, Zoroastrianism was a major religion in ancient Iran and Iraq. And the Magi were the religious leaders of this foreign religion. Another big deal in ancient Iran and Iraq was astrology. So it is no wonder that these Magi from the East were looking to the stars. This passage is not endorsing astrology for Christians, in case you're wondering. It is showing God condescending to use human misunderstandings to reveal his truth. To understand this passage, we need to picture these Magi not as foreign kings, but as religious leaders for a different religion. Almost as if, I don't know, the Dalai Lama and his Buddhist monks in their yellow robes had shown up to worship Jesus. That would make a stir. If a pagan priest, sorry, it is pagan priests that God chose in this passage to bring from a distant land in order to recognize his son, Jesus. So what does God want to tell us this morning through this inspired Christmas story of pagan priests, a murderous king, indifferent Bible nerds, and awkward presents? The point of this story, of course, is Jesus. Just because the Sunday school answer is a cliche doesn't mean it isn't true. Well, what does the story tell us about Jesus? We hear so little about the childhood of our Lord that each story is all the more significant. Some scholars suggest, and it's actually a very traditional view, that Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience, some of whom had believed in Jesus, whereas the other three gospels were primarily written for Gentiles. So for a Jewish audience, this story reveals Jesus in all his glory, and yet it also challenges their tendency to be inward-focused and to pat themselves on the back. I think it has exactly the same message for us this morning. In the preceding chapter of Matthew's Gospel, which you can read this afternoon if you like, we hear an angel telling Joseph that Jesus is the promised Savior, and his birth fulfills a prophecy given 700 years earlier by Isaiah. That's the passage that gives us the name Emmanuel for Jesus, God with us. This passage today is about finding the king of the Jews, not the self-proclaimed king, Herod, but instead the true Messiah, God's anointed one. Now, before Advent and resuming again next week, Pastor Ryan is preaching about the life of David, king of Israel, God's anointed one. And long after David's death, even after the end of David's kingdom, the prophets of the Old Testament had foretold one of David's descendants would arise and would rule. Most famous, the most famous prophecy is Isaiah 9, 6-7, which Billy read in his prayer earlier. And uh, you may also recognize it from the Grace Kids singing it recently. And if you weren't paying attention to either of those, it is in Handel's Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When the Old Testament discusses the Messiah, it usually calls him simply David or the son of David. 
the story of the Magi confirms that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises about a coming Messiah, a new David, a future king for God's people. Even the fact that these visitors were, in fact, Gentiles, not Jews, fulfills the prophecies that the new Messiah would be the hope not only of the Jews, but of the foreigners as well. I will just reference briefly two, uh, two prophecies. In Isaiah 49, God addresses his servant, the Messiah, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60 even foretells camels coming bringing gold and frankincense, praising the Lord. It starts to sound suspicious. For all of us here who cannot claim Jewish ancestry, including me, the promise of the Messiah as the Savior for all the peoples is good news. And even better, this story of the Magi shows that nothing, absolutely nothing, will get in the way of God's plan of redemption. Not idolatry and false religions, not the indifference of God's own people, not even ruthless and corrupt politicians bent on preserving their power at any cost. In a world which seems to be going from bad to worse, this is good news. For those of, those of us, so many of us, who are worried and anxious basically all the time, this is the good news. We can really trust God because nothing can prevent him from fulfilling his promises of our redemption. Nothing of eternal importance will fail. So that we can say in the words of Paul to Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Or as Paul wrote to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing will prevent God from fulfilling his promise, as God said through Isaiah, the zeal of the Lord will do this. But the royal message that I've been summarizing here is only one part of what this passage is saying. Remember those gifts which I said earlier were of no earthly use to the infant Jesus and his family? As it turns out, they're very useful to us because they are clues. Christian commentators for well over a thousand years have pointed out the meaning uh, the meanings of those gifts. The gold, of course, is a gift fit for a king, as we have said. The frankincense, a very expensive aroma, was used in worshiping God. All the way back in the Exodus, 1,400 years earlier, God had instructed Moses to make a holy incense, to burn on the altar of incense in the tabernacle. And one of the chief ingredients of that incense was frankincense. According to Leviticus 2, all the grain offerings given to God, unless they were sin offerings, were to be accompanied by frankincense. Indeed, every reference to frankincense in the Old Testament, with one exception of Song of Songs, uh, is a reference to worshiping God. The gift of frankincense to Jesus underscores that this baby is Emmanuel, God with us, and rightly do we worship him. Myrrh, which is a bitter gum or resin, had a broader range of uses in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it is mostly mentioned in connection with death. According to Mark 15, Jesus was given wine mixed with myrrh while he hung on the cross. John 19 reports that for burying Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea brought a large amount of myrrh and aloes. And the ancient Egyptians also used myrrh for embalming. The gift of myrrh to the infant Jesus hints toward his death, his bitter death, which saves us from our sins. So I'm grateful to Doug for choosing songs that make plain the significance of these odd gifts. Jesus is for us king and God and sacrifice. So how do we live in light of who Jesus is? What, how does this passage change our day-to-day -day lives? 
As we're entering a new year tomorrow, some of you are thinking about New Year's resolutions. Others may be wondering if anything will actually change, uh, if next year will be any different from this one. This passage this morning is intended to challenge us, not to make us feel all cozy inside. In fact, I suspect many people in the original audience found this passage rather offensive. So I will do my best to explain why, and in the process I may offend some of you. If I do, talk to me afterward. I'll be happy to discuss it, or better yet, talk to Ryan. The letter to the Hebrews says that God's word is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We can use scripture to diagnose our spiritual illnesses so that we can take them to Jesus for true healing. Notice I didn't say we can use scripture to find out where we're not good enough and fix ourselves. Can't do that. Take them to Jesus. But so think about this story and ask yourself, do you see yourself in any of these characters? Now, some of you want to use the Sunday school answer and say Jesus. But if you say Jesus, you may want to think again. Ask, do you see yourself in Jesus? In this passage, Jesus only receives gifts and receives worship. So if you think that's you, you should repent of your greed and self-centeredness. Jesus can help you with that. My guess is none of us would say, oh yeah, Herod, that's where we see ourselves. We are not plotting murder. Actually, let me just parenthetically say, if you are plotting murder, repent now. But let's try a different tack. Do you ever feel, I don't know, threatened a little by Jesus? Do you ever think to yourself, I want salvation and eternal life, all right, but I'm not really too sure about Jesus himself? Do you worry that if you submit to Jesus as Lord, you will lose your fun, your independence? Do you find yourself saying, perhaps to others or perhaps just inside, I can be a Christian, but that doesn't need to get in the way of whatever it is you want? Do you have a sneaking suspicion that Jesus doesn't really want you to be happy? And that if you get too serious about this worship and submission thing, it may ruin your life. Many people do feel that way. Of course, you'd never say so. But most Americans, if we're honest, do feel that Jesus cramps our style. That sometimes he just gets in the way. And that is a step in the direction of Herod. You see, Herod wanted to be the king of the Jews. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. He was recognized as such and enjoyed the benefits of his position, but he knew he wasn't the real king. So when he heard news that the real king might be here, he was willing to do whatever it might take to protect his position. And almost all of us, deep down, really want to be the ones in charge of our own lives. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to worship ourselves, to be our own sovereign king, But Jesus is the real king, not Herod, not you. And friends, Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. And he knows what is good for you better than you know it yourself. That is why Herod's response, even in a small way, is wrong and harmful. Trying to keep Jesus at arm's length, trying to limit his presence in your life, will only harm you and those around you. And it will not work because Jesus will not be contained. So if you are feeling threatened by Jesus, here's some advice. Surrender. Now, whether we admit to feeling threatened by Jesus or not, I suspect many of us are rather like the religious leaders in this passage. After all, they answered the question correctly. They were awaiting the Messiah, and they knew the Bible Bible and what it said. But friends, there is a world of difference between awaiting the Lord and looking 
for him. They knew the Bible, but they didn't care what God was doing in their day. James warns us about the, how possible it is to be correct in what you believe and miss the heart of the matter. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But what about you? Do you find Jesus hmm, a bit boring? Not a threat, really, just an object of curiosity, nothing more? Dorothy Sayers, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, wrote about our society's declaration that Jesus is tame and that only clergy and the super-religious should bother with him. She wrote, We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Is that your view of Jesus? Just not very exciting? Perhaps religion is something, of course, you want to get it right, but having checked, that off, the, checked off that box on the to-do list, you can then do what interests you. And this describes even many people who would say they are interested in religion, like the Bible nerds in this passage. Many of us care more about getting the answer right than about, wait, what, what, the, what is the question? <laughs> or what does the answer mean? Among religious people like ourselves, this often looks like memorizing the Bible or the catechism, reading the right books, not reading books by the wrong authors, or maybe just being sure we attend the right church. Now, friends, if that is all your faith concerns, uh, consists of, that is not Christianity but Phariseeism. I'm not knocking Bible memorization or the others. They are very good in their place, but they are not enough. It is possible to repeat all the right words but not know the person they are about. If we see Jesus as boring, we will be so wrapped up in our petty interests that we'll be of no real use to God or anyone else. Our ability to answer questions is not what saves us. Well, again, Jesus is the answer, certainly cliche. It is also uniquely true. He is the one who saves us. And the good news is that he does save us. Even when we are at our worst, God is not surprised. But our loving Father has already provided for our forgiveness in Jesus, and he is now driving our transformation by his Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. And those of us already in this room are not the only ones he is saving. He is continually calling new people to himself, more sinners to redemption. Centuries before Jesus' birth, a prophet named Habakkuk complained about how bad the world was, how wicked people were, and God responded, Look among the nations, we might say among the pagans, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That is still true today. God is all-powerful and all-good, and he is doing amazing things. And if you want to stop thinking that Jesus is boring, you just need to ask him to show you even the faintest sliver of what he is up to. Coming back to today's passage, what about those magi? Did any of you think to yourselves, that's who I am? I am a pagan and a worshiper of idols looking for the real God, a foreigner with no place among God's people, except that God has decided to reveal the truth to me. If you didn't think that, maybe you should have. The, the Magi worship Jesus. They got that right. But here again, the gospel challenges us, so we need to pay attention. Now, the challenge is probably not what most of you are thinking. Too many people think this passage asks us, what gifts can you give for, to God? And that these expensive gifts mean that we must give our best. There are other parts in the Bible that say things like that. But that is a serious misreading of this passage. I have argued that Jesus did not need these gifts, and he certainly doesn't need our gifts either. 
But he used the Magi's gifts to reveal who he really is in the same way he might use our gifts. So let's get very specific. The new building is a big gift that I suspect many of you have been contributing to. Parenthetically, I know nothing about what anyone gives around here, and that's good. I want to keep it that way. So don't tell me. The new building is a big gift that this church is giving to God that God doesn't need. I don't want you to be thinking, God has been just waiting to use this church until the new building could be built. God hasn't been thinking to himself, I wish I could use Grace PCA, but no, they don't have a building yet. God has been using this church already. The real church is not the building, but the people. And the building matters a whole lot more to us than it matters for what God will accomplish. But God will use the building to make himself known. God wants people to know him. And the primary method he uses is the lives of the people he calls. And this is the real challenge of this passage. Like the gifts of the Magi, our lives reveal what we worship. And if we worship Jesus, we will reflect him. So it could get uncomfortable. You can ask yourself, what would people learn about Jesus by looking at your life? Would they see that Jesus is worth going out of the way for, like these magi? Or looking at your life, would they see that Jesus isn't really worth the inconvenience? If people looked at your life, would they see that Jesus is the Lord that we love and obey? Or instead, would they think Jesus is maybe a boss that we need to get around somehow? Or perhaps Jesus as the personal trainer whose advice we prefer to ignore? Or would they see Jesus as good in small doses, just don't lose your head? What does your life say about Jesus? Would other people see Jesus as the person you trust to provide for you and your family? Or would they see Jesus as part of a diversified portfolio of investments and safety nets? Because you never know. Would people observe your life and see Jesus as welcoming strangers, outcasts, the unwanted people? Or would they see Jesus as closing the gates to keep the riffraff out? Looking at your life, would they see Jesus as the holy God who humbled himself to love, to walk with, and even to rescue sinners? Now we throw that word around, but like really horrible people. Or would they see Jesus instead as a self-righteous prig with no time for the failings of others? So here's one practical test, and be honest now. When we have the new building, if a man were to show up, dirty and stinking, hasn't bathed in who knows how long, would you assume that this is a seeker and would you welcome him? Or would you assume this is a thief and we need to hide the valuables? If a woman were to show up to the new building in um, very revealing clothes, would you assume that she wants Jesus, or would you assume that she wants to steal someone's husband? If a man were to show up in Middle Eastern clothes, or a woman in full hijab, the ankle-length robe, would you assume that this person is a seeker or a terrorist? Pay attention to your first reactions. They're often the most honest. For the Jewish audience of Matthew's Gospel, these magi were the wrong sort of people. They were not the people who would attract others. They were not the people anyone would brag about knowing, oh, they go to our church. They were too clearly sinners, too clearly foreign, too clearly pagan. But Jesus knew whom he called. He is the one who said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save 
the lost. So I've said some challenging things this morning, and I hope you'll think about them. The end of one year and the beginning of the next is often a good time for reflection. And when you think them, about them, I do hope you'll find that you do not measure up. You are not as good as you think you are. That you, too, are a sinner. And when you realize that, you need to know that Jesus really is the Savior for real sinners. Sinners like you, sinners like me. The more we realize how much we fall short, the better we can understand God's generous righteousness. He alone is the one who makes us what we were meant to be. And this is the reality. No matter how good you think you are, you need a Savior, and he is ready for you. And no matter how bad you really are, you need a Savior, and he is ready for you. My brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a platitude. It is not a pretty ornament on the Christmas tree of a well-ordered life. Christianity is not a comforting tradition. It is not a feel-good formula. The death of Christ is a desperate cure for a dying patient. If you don't yet know that you're dying, that your sins will kill you unless you are in Jesus, then I urge you to smell the coffee, see the writing on the wall. But the good news is the cure is effective. We, we the dead, receive new life. And the cure is permanent. The abundant life that Jesus provides begins here and now and will continue forever among those who are dying in the body, but living eternally in the Spirit, we can sing and worship Jesus Christ. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, earth to heaven replies. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your birth, thank you for your death, and thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that you are our Lord and that you are saving us. You have saved us, and you will save us to the uttermost. We can trust entirely in you. And thank you that you give us the privilege of knowing you and of praying in, the name, in your name to your Father, our God. Amen.